I told everybody I don't ever want to eat a top ramen the rest of my life. Because <laughs> you eat top ramens like crazy in prison, right? That's like the staple food. And you get very creative with it as far as putting some beans one day. What well, You could do so much with a top ramen noodle. Like, there's a thousand ways to cook a ramen. So when all this craziness went on, I started seeing people and hearing people like buying top ramens and cup of soups and pasta and flour. And I'm like, why? The stores are open, they're not closed. I am not buying top ramens, man. So I didn't buy it. About two weeks pass, and I start seeing that it's a lot more serious than I even took it in the beginning. This is getting pretty serious. Welcome to Gray Area. I'm Julie Reynolds Martinez, and this is season two, After Life, where we're following Gilbert Bale as he learns to navigate life after serving a life sentence. Be sure to check out the previous episodes if you haven't already. It's the spring of 2020. Gilbert is still in transitional housing, and he's a couple weeks into his first job. He's been hired as a substance abuse counselor, and he's even starting to get the hang of those computers that drove him so crazy his first weeks out of prison. He likes his new town, Santa Cruz, and he's even joined some friends here in Native American sweat lodges, continuing a spiritual path he began in prison. His fiancée, Rebecca, is still in Texas, but she's planning to move out west so they can start their life together. And just as Gilbert has begun to get used to this wild new world out here, that new world grinds to a halt. COVID-19 has reached pandemic proportions and a global shutdown has just begun. The entire state prison system is on lockdown because as scary as COVID is out here, inside the walls, the virus is spreading quickly and its victims have nowhere to go for safety. Gilbert is as perplexed as the rest of us about the future. This virus that's going around, it breaks my heart. I'm fortunate because all the guys I left behind, they're locked down. And we're not getting no true objective reports on what's really going on in there. They're not letting let no camera go in there and show you who's sick, who's not sick. I think about them guys because it's not like a one-day lockdown, one-week lockdown. Probably not a one-month lockdown. And you're only going to get a shower every three days. It's probably only going to be you and your Sally being escorted down there to the shower, right back to your cell. And that is your program. So for me, I remember those things. And I'm like, I'm fortunate because I have a job. I've already worked from home a few days out of the week on Wednesdays. I work on the company laptop and I have all the software in there. And then there's the panic in the air, the toilet paper hoarding. And like so many of us, Gilbert finally adds ramen noodles to his shopping cart, something he thought he'd never do. I better take my butt over there and buy at least a case and put it on the side because if they do close the market... <laughs> And I actually <laughs> ate one the other day. <laughs> and I'm eating it thinking about the fellas like, oh my God, if they see me eating this, they would be pissed off at me. It reminded me of being in prison. In prison, when you go on lockdown, you cannot go to the commissary. You can't order no packages. Whatever you have on your shelf, you better hope it lasts that whole lockdown. 
The coronavirus crisis is changing so fast. The great shutdown of 2020 is underway. Unfortunately, it's at the arrival of a hurricane 100 years ago. People would just feel the rain start to fall and feel the wind start to pick up, but no one knew just how bad it would be or for how long. It's early April and we're chatting in a nearly deserted coffee shop. As the pandemic grows more serious every day, we try to keep our sense of humor, but we can feel the underlying tension and fear of the unknown. As a drug treatment counselor, Gilbert is considered an essential worker, but there's a severe shortage of face masks. He's been given one disposable mask that he's expected to wear day after day. I got a mask. <laughs> okay, let me describe what I'm seeing here. Gilbert has this badass mask made out of a black bandana, it looks like, right? Yeah, hold it up. <laughs> Did you make that? They give you those masks. They gave me one at work. They're they're made to wear one time and throw it away. You could come into contact with the virus. It'll stick on there. And then every day you're picking it up and putting it on your face, which is the most prone area. So I said, you know what? I'm going to just wear a bandana because I could come home and they say the heat, the, the hot water, it actually kills it. So I wash it, disinfect it. They dry in 20 minutes. You know, at one time I put a bandana on my face, the police pulled me over. <laughs> I walk in a store and everybody's gonna start hiding their purse and walking out and they're scared. And today I'm driving down the street with a bandana on my face. And I'm like, back in the days, it just wouldn't have went down that way. <laughs> he tells me about a counselor he used to work with at Soledad Prison who came to visit him this morning. She asked him what he told the parole board. What was it he said that earned his freedom? And then the conversation goes somewhere I didn't expect. Boom, it hit me hard. She asked me, how was the hearing? Like, what did they ask you? I got really, really emotional, like overwhelming. Tears welled up in my eyes. And when I get to that level of emotion, it's hard for me to speak. It, it, it freezes me up. And uh, I just put my head down and, and I can feel the tears coming down my face. When I sat through this whole hearing, I never talked about the positive things that I did while I was in prison. Almost in 98% of the hearing, I talked about all the bad things I did in my life, my whole life. Like they asked me about my crime and I was 100% honest. I told them I planned it. I'm the one that went and picked up my co-defendant. I'm the one that told him to shoot the gun. I drove the car. I'm the one that was retaliating for a murder that happened three days before. It, it triggered that emotion again, that, that, that pain. There's a lot of pain there. There's a lot of pain. And I didn't realize that it, it's like, I must've stuffed it away and because of, Everything that's going on now that I'm out, like there's the overstimulation of everything that's out here has kind of compartmentalized the pain from the hearing and from the whole 21 years of being in prison. It's like I put that to a side because I'm so distracted with everything out here and I'm all this is going on and today here we go, I'm back in that talking about it again. I'm thinking about my victims, not just the direct victim of, my, of the crime, the, the attempted murder, the drive-by shooting, but also the impact it had on my family, the impact it had on my community.
how many youth were told that war story about me where now they want to mimic me, they want to be like me. I know that young people who get involved in gangs often look up to the older guys and try to imitate what they do, but they're also victims of this idolizing. They want to have their own story. They want to have somebody telling stories about them in the neighborhood. And here I am today talking about it, and it just drew all that up. So I realized that there's some stuff there I need to, I need to, I need to at least start talking about until I can talk about it and not have such a high level of the emotion attached to it. And will it go away? I don't know. Is it healthy? Maybe it is. Maybe I might be like this for years. Maybe I might be like this for the rest of my life. And I'm not saying that like I didn't do nothing to earn going to prison. I I deserve going to prison for what I did. I I deserve it. You know, I understand that. I accept that. That's the truth. That's real to me. It took a long time to come to that point of me accepting that. But I have to accept it to move on. Do you feel like you don't have the right to complain about those conditions? I mean, they're horrible conditions to live under and you're catching yourself about whether you deserved it or not. And it's like you always, I don't know. I just want to say nobody should live like that. Yeah. I don't care what, whatever, you know. It's okay to it's okay to recognize that that's not a human way to live. I guess that's what I'm saying. I agree with you. The definition to me is somebody that complains is telling you about something they don't like that they're not willing to fix. Mm. In contrast to me saying, "Hey, here's some things that can be fixed," and I'm willing to speak about those things. I'm willing to do something about it. We don't know it yet, but this coffee chat will be our last face-to-face -face meetup in Santa Cruz. For nine years, late winter and early spring was always when Gilbert and his friend Debbie Aguilar organized the programming for National Crime Victims Rights Week inside the state prison in Soledad. But this spring, the COVID case rates inside California prisons are climbing fast. Triage tents are set up in many of the yards. Although the state is reporting only 115 in-custody COVID cases and one death, real-time data is incredibly lagging. A later study will show that in 2020, prison COVID cases across the country were actually five and a half times higher than the general populations, and the death rate was triple the outside rate. Like so many of us, Gilbert and Debbie decide to go online. They're going to produce a digital version of their Crime Victims' Rights Week on social media. For Gilbert, the annual event has been an important part of dealing with his own accountability for the harms he caused to his neighborhood, his family, and to himself. The pain is something he still struggles with, and his unlikely friendship with Debbie is one way he deals with it, a sort of safe harbor in these rough internal seas. 
For those who've seen them speak together, a former violent criminal and a survivor of a son's murder, the experience is unforgettable. Debbie, I'm making this video for you and your organization because I wanted to give honor to you guys for all the work you do in the community and especially for coming into the prisons. All the years that you, you brought all the women and all the different speakers. It does a lot for the guys in there. Not too many people go in there, especially people that have been hurt from crime, uh, been victimized, survivors. Some people will look at me as a mother of a murdered child. The awful thing that happened was my son became a victim of senseless gang violence in Salinas. I wanted revenge. Because I decided I wasn't going to let that grip me and keep me in this hell. I didn't want to be like that and, and bitter and angry. But you've got a heart as big as an ocean. I think I do. There's room enough in there still. I have peace now. I remember the day you came and you told the story about your son. And at one time, I know for me and for many of the people sitting in there, we were, we were on the other side of that. We were on the other side of people being hurt, people being victimized. By different, different stages in our lives, we didn't think about the other people that get hurt. But there was times where there wasn't a dry eye in the room because people start feeling that pain and they actually started changing a lot of parts of their lives. You're healing a lot of people and you healed me, you helped me when I lost my brother. You wanted to pray with me and you did pray with me and that meant a lot to me. Unfortunately, due to COVID-19, the guys weren't able to put this uh, event on in the prison. Right now they're locked down. They write to me and they let me know that this was the first year in the last nine years we weren't able to do it. But we, we wish we could have. We wish we could do more. I hope that you are well. I will be posting up more photos of your loved ones. Never let anyone blow out your light. Just pray for all of those who try to burn out your light. been 125 days since I got out. I got a full schedule now. I'm fully immersed in the everyday things that people do. Probably and some more. I'm hiking up this mountain right now. Do a little self-care. I've been working uh, full time as a drug and alcohol counselor at at a methadone clinic and that's been going pretty good right now currently it's been pretty chaotic due to the virus going around the COVID-19 uh, we're seeing all of the all of our people over the phone doing counseling over the phone so you know that's a that's a learning experience in itself I try to find some time to at least go to the trail and go get some hiking in. Uh, today after work, I decided uh, 5.30 I'm going to stop right here. De La Vega Park. 
they got a trail right here. I, uh, it's the first time I've been on it. It's in the redwoods. There's a lot of birds and trees, and I enjoy it. It gets gets me moving. It removes my mind from work and school and group. The quality of my life has improved drastically. I dreamt of these days where I could just get off the road and get on that dirt trail and see where it takes me. Gilbert loves the natural beauty of Santa Cruz, but he misses his family terribly. The COVID lockdown has isolated everyone, but for a man eager to re-engage with the world, it's even harder. Because he has done so well during his six months in transitional housing, the parole office is allowing Gilbert to transfer parole to Southern California. And so he goes. His grandmother and siblings still live in the L.A. area, and he can stay with his sister to get some of the togetherness he's been craving. This is good. 10 10 recommend. Yeah? What do you think? Made my ears wiggle. Yeah? You yeah. just gotta look real good. <laughs> you gonna help make tamales? Yeah. Or are you gonna help Uncle eat them? <laughs> See what you got, Zoe. He quickly finds a job in a behavioral health crisis unit. Marlena is living in Colorado, but she comes to visit regularly. She and Gilbert have grown closer in new ways, including their shared commitment to breaking the cycle of incarceration and standing up for human rights. Here, they're sitting down for a conversation that he recorded and posted on YouTube. Maybe talk about some of the challenges and maybe even some of the life lessons that hold some value in your daily life now. It's different for me because all my own personal knowledge of you was all in a visiting room. It wasn't at home. It was always me and you in that visiting room. Me looking at all other visitors and seeing how they were reacting, what their happiness looked like. Being able to do things the normal way, our new normal way, I guess, is the thing that stands out the most to me because it's not in that visiting room anymore. It actually feels like what it, it should feel like. <laughs> and, and my own happiness. It hurts for me to even see you or hear you cry. I just want to hold you in my arms and never let you go. It's not a movie, this is real life. There's some things you can never get back. I love you for who you are and who you have become. I'm proud of you. You did so good. Yeah. You got good grades in school. You finished high school. You broke the cycle. You didn't get into drugs. You didn't get into the gangs. You didn't get into going to juvenile hall, county jail, to prison. Obviously, you have found some kind of way to work through that. How did you do that? You know, growing up in East LA, there's a huge sense of community. And I think that really saved me. Of course, there's still a gang life. There's still other subcultures. But I think with every community, there's good and bad. 
I also was pretty heavily into the punk scene and that was a really big changer for me because a lot of it had to do with human rights. I felt like I was one of the misfits that didn't belong, that didn't have this normal life that everybody wants. And I felt like I, I belonged there. I wasn't a gang member. I knew that wasn't for me. But I knew that through music and through being part of that community, through protesting, through going to school and finding clubs that could help me use my voice and, and this power that I kind of took back as my own, that I had something to, to show the world that I wasn't just going to sit back and just let all these bad circumstances take control. Or define who you really are. The pandemic shutdown isn't the only worldwide news in 2020. After George Floyd's murder by a police officer, people have abandoned their quarantine and they take to the streets in anger. These uprisings began with police killings, but they've taken on broader messages that for the first time are front and center in the national conversation. Defund the police, end mass incarceration, the subject even makes it onto the late-night talk shows, which are now staged on Zoom because of the shutdown. Here, John Oliver is trying to explain to Jimmy Fallon why he's just dedicated an entire episode to defunding the police. It's a conversation that's been going on for decades among activists, but now it's suddenly happening around the world. It was, it was about serving whatever community the police were in better and trying to decouple safety from policing. It, in researching it more and more, it starts to make more and more sense and you realize that things are so bad, you need solutions that are gonna match it. And the problem, of course, is if the police don't realize the scale of the problem, they're not gonna accept the scale of the solution. It is not about no police, no it's about what the police do. It's late August, 2020, and Gilbert and Marlena are marching in Los Angeles. They're at a rally commemorating the anniversary of the 1970 East LA Chicano Moratorium. 50 years ago, 30,000 people here took to the streets to protest the Vietnam War and promote social justice. That march down Whittier Boulevard was broken up by police. Four people were killed that day, including journalist Ruben Salazar, Today, the topic of policing is on everyone's minds, and people at this march are handing out signs that say jail, killer cops. Gilbert and Marlena are marching for Manny. Ready? Yeah. <laughs> Let's do this. Stop complaining. Come out here and do something about it. 50th anniversary of the Chicano Moratorium. And we just gotta say 50 years. We should be talking about how much progress we made. By January 2021, the pandemic remains unchecked, and the long-term impacts of both the virus and our responses to it are becoming apparent. The incoming Biden administration has vowed to quickly get vaccines to the public, but they won't be available for several months. Even then, you have to be over 65 or have certain health conditions. Debbie Aguilar has been urging friends on social media to wear masks and take precautions. COVID is especially rampant and deadly in America's black and Latino communities. 
Her hometown of Salinas, roughly two-thirds Latino, is no exception. Gilbert's friend, Danny Contreras, reached out to Debbie during a fundraiser for a friend who'd been deported after his release from prison. Debbie sent Danny an apologetic message. She texted me, I wish I could give money right now, but I can't. And I was like, why? What's going on? She's like, I'm in the hospital. I was like, what do you mean you're in the hospital? And then she just got silent for like a week. And I started, oh man, I hope she's all right. Next thing I know, one of her family members called me and said, she got COVID, she's in there. And then she texts me, she's, I'm still in the hospital. And I told her, we're praying for you, sister, keep fighting, all the brothers. And that was the last words. Debbie died a few days later on January 23rd, 2021. Before the year's end, the vaccines that would likely have saved her life were readily available. The Salinas community remembers her as a relentless fighter for victims of violence, but also as an advocate for healing and restorative justice. Even though her son was murdered, she never stopped supporting the men behind bars. As Gilbert settles into his life with family in Southern California, there's finally a development in the criminal case against Deputy Bradley Dietz, the officer who killed Gilbert's brother, Manny. But Gilbert and his family don't know this yet because the news media hasn't reported it. As we mentioned in our last episode, Dietz was arrested in late 2019 by LA police for his role helping keep police away from another deputy's cannabis warehouse robbery while it was still in progress. Dietz's buddy was convicted of federal robbery and gun charges after essentially kidnapping three warehouse employees and holding them in his patrol car. Dietz's arrest was all over the news, and that was pretty much all Gilbert knew about him. No one reported whether he was ever convicted, but Gilbert assumed he was at least kicked off the force after his arrest. We found the real story in L.A. County Superior Court records. It took two years after his arrest, but in late 2021, Dietz pled guilty to obstructing an officer. Our fellow reporter, George Sanchez Tello, obtained Dietz's case file from the Alhambra courthouse. When I got the folder, I was very surprised at how thin it was. In my experience as a reporter and a mitigation specialist, I just anticipate many more forms than what I found. The request for the warrant was based on nearly 250 pages of reports and witness statements, none of which was available to the public. In fact, much of the case file was under seal. George also found numerous delays in the proceedings. It took three years after the crime just to get to the guilty plea, which is pretty unusual in a misdemeanor case. There were just some things that caught me off guard. L.A. County records show Dietz was paid his full salary, more than $120,000 plus benefits, the entire time. Even as a misdemeanor, his crime could have resulted in a one-year jail term, plus fines. The judge could have been tough on Dietz, considering he was a sworn peace officer, someone trusted by citizens to uphold the law. But that isn't what happened. On June 21st, 2021, 
two attorneys appear on his behalf and they propose a submission of a mitigation packet for diversion. Diversion can be requested in certain types of cases and certain types of charges that in lieu of serving time in county jail or state prison, you have the opportunity to do some sort of community service, community engagement, or self-betterment. Prosecutors object to the request. On October 22nd of 2021, the judge grants the diversion request. He had to complete 300 hours of community service within 18 months. The case will be dismissed if Deeds completes diversion. It notes that to date, he has completed 286 hours of community service with some organization called Shiloh Ministries. Records show Dietz will have another hearing on April 24, 2023, when his charges will likely be dropped. It's not clear why it took so many years for Dietz to be convicted, or why he was the only defendant in the conspiracy who faced misdemeanor charges in state, not federal court. Despite violating the public's trust in law enforcement, and abetting armed robbery and the false imprisonment of three innocent people, public records show that Dietz made nearly $200,000 in salary and benefits in 2021. L.A. Sheriff's Department officials confirmed to us that he's still active on the force. If he'd been charged with a felony, or if he worked in another county, he might have been fired for his criminal activity. I asked Cerise Castle if this outcome in L.A. County surprises her. She's the reporter who exposed L.A.'s deputy gangs in her series, A Tradition of Violence. You know, that really does not surprise me in the slightest. I am currently covering a deputy who has three assaults on his record that I know of, two of which were caught on camera, and he is still working at the department. He's being criminally prosecuted for felony charges, and he is still an employee collecting a paycheck. There are other cases that I'm familiar with where that do involve marijuana raids. There is a deputy gang called the Jump Out Boys that went into a marijuana dispensary, planted guns, and put felony gun charges on a number of people. And video evidence showed that you know, that they planted these guns and that they made the entire story up. They were fired, but they were able to win their jobs back, along with several years of back pay, totaling up to $200,000. And they're working on the sheriff's department now. So this that's a phenomenon that is extremely common. It's the spring of 2022, and National Crime Victims' Rights Week has rolled around again. Gilbert has put together an online remembrance for Debbie Aguilar. Joining him are his friend Danny Contreras, along with dozens of former lifers and friends of Debbie. All right, ladies and gentlemen, welcome to National Crime Victims Rights Week 2022. We have a lot of formerly incarcerated uh, individuals on this meeting, as well as substance abuse counselors that we had the privilege of working with for many years as mentors, as students, a lot of us here that served time, we all were sentenced to life at one time, but we're home now. Each of us are with our families in different places of California. Tonight, we wanna to give a special honor to Debbie Aguilar. 
Debbie Aguilar was also a big part of these events that took place in uh, Soledad. That was her way of, of healing. And I want to give her this time. I remember when I first came home, she contacted me. It was 2020. She was like, we have to do something. I can't get in the prison. I told her, well, let's do something. We'll go on Facebook. We'll go live. And we did. Right after that, she got sick. So this is for her. This is for Debbie. Tonight, it'll be an open platform. How have you been honoring people that have been victimized by crime? How have you given back in your community? Because that's a big part of, of us coming home. I'll introduce myself, and then we'll go around, and then we'll open the floor up. My name is Gilbert Bale. I'm a formerly incarcerated person. I worked in a substance abuse program for 13 years. I worked on and off with youth while I was incarcerated for 16 years. It's something I'm passionate about. Since I've been home, I've worked in the mental health field, a behavioral health field at the crisis unit in downtown San Bernardino. I'm carrying my promises I've made forward. Everybody probably in this room has children that were impacted because of our decision. That's not something that just you, you apologize and it's forgotten. The body keeps the score, man, like that book says. The body keeps the score and it's, it's trauma. So let's all move forward, continue in our struggle to reduce recidivism, stop as much as we can from that cycle of continuing. And I hope we can send all of our love into Solidarity this week and let them know that um, we support them and them continuing with this movement. Thank you and have a good That's night, right. everybody. Thank you, guys. Thank you, guys. It's great. In our next and final episode, Gilbert makes an unexpected return to a place he believed he'd left forever. This episode was co-produced by Gilbert Bayo and Mara J. Reynolds. George Sanchez Teo contributed additional reporting, and we'll include links to Cerise Castle's work in our show notes. You can check out all our episodes and show notes at grayareapodcast.com, and that's gray with an A. And don't forget to try Season 1, where you can hear six stories of justice and redemption. And please be sure to rate us or write a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you hear us. The music for this episode is by Ketza, Lobo Loco, Malictus Music, Martin Shellikens, and Sarah Afonso. Thanks again to all the amazing artists at the Free Music Archive. Details are on our website. This project was made possible with support from California Humanities, a nonprofit partner of the National Endowment for the Humanities. Visit www.calhume.org. For Gray Area, this is Julie Reynolds Martinez, and this is Season 2 After Life. <laughs>